Well, good morning, everyone. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, uh, to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter one. Uh, as most of you know, we're, uh, we're in a series right now called Blueprint, which is uh, a study of this letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, a letter in which he addresses what it means, really what it means to be a Christian. And then he goes to great lengths to lay out for his reader, as best as he can, an explanation of God's sort of overarching uh, purpose for our lives, both individually and, and as the church. And last Sunday, uh, if you recall, we ended with Paul saying that in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And then he goes on to write this in chapter one, verse eight. He says, with all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their, fulfill their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now, where to begin with all of that? Right, uh, you know, Paul says a lot of heady stuff here. Uh, he uses a lot of theologi uh, theologically loaded uh, terms. He presents some very complicated ideas, and and this is just a short little section. You know, I mentioned last last week how in the uh, original Greek text, verse three through verse fourteen, is one long run-on sentence. Uh, English translators break it up for us to make it a little easier to read, but really Paul's train of thought you know, runs from verse three all the way through 14. One author uh, I read refers to it as a monstrous sentence conglomeration of Greek language, which was a little intimidating to me uh, to take on uh, because how do, you, how do you unpack that? How do you unpack a monstrous sentence conglomeration? Uh, how do you do that in 30 minutes that we have and how do you... Uh, explain any of it in 30 minutes. You really, you really can't. So for the sake of time, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna share with you what, what I've learned, okay? Based on my study, based on my understanding, here's how I see it. Paul's thesis here, his main idea, uh, you know, um, throughout all this verbiage is quite simple, really. It's just clouded by a lot of extra stuff. Essentially, in verse nine, Paul reveals what he wants his readers to understand. Listen to what he says. With all wisdom, he says, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, and him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan. You may say, well, hold on, dude. You, you know, that's not helpful. You just reread a section of the sentence you already read before. That's not helping us. Um, true. Uh, but I reread it because uh, this portion really captures uh, Paul's primary message, which comes down to this. Let me give you my Ray K. simple summary. Ready? God has a plan. You say, why didn't Paul just say that? Well, he kind of does. Uh, you just gotta, you gotta get to it. You know, and actually, we named the series Blueprint because the Greek term that Paul uses here for plan literally means a blueprint, a carefully detailed design for something. God has one. He has it for a world. That's ultimately what, what, what Paul is telling us. Now, not everybody believes that, right? Not everybody believes that. Shakespeare's Macbeth said, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day 
to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle. He says, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard of no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. What was Macbeth saying? In flowery, you know, poetic language, he was saying, there's no plan to all of this. There's no plan. Life is, 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 is a random, meaningless deal signif uh, signifying nothing, nothing. The famed British philosopher Bertrand Russell agreed with that, only he, he put it in, in more you know, academic language. Uh, in fact, his opinion really reflects the modern secular view of life. Russell wrote this, man is the product of causes which had no provision or prevision of the end they were achieving. His origin, growth, hopes and fears, loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be burned beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Translation. Russell says, life is a freak biological accident. That's all it is. Nothing more, nothing less. You know, love, beauty, art, Hope, achievements, moral sensibilities, they're all meaningless. I mean, life feels significant, but it's not significant. There's no plan, there's no purpose, there's no design to the world. History's going nowhere. Eventually, the, the solar system's gonna burn up. Humanity will burn up with it. Nothing left, no one remembered. And then Russell proposed that the only way to live in light of that at reality, the only way to live is through what he called unyielding despair unyielding despair. In other words, he said, you gotta just get up every mo morning, suck it up, and admit that life is meaningless, has no significance, and then go ahead and eat your waffles, I guess, you know. <laughs> but here's the deal. The majority of people around the world don't agree with Russell, or with today's secularists who share his view. Most men and women across all cultures believe there is meaning to life that there is a God, there is a purpose to our existence, and certainly biblical Christianity teaches just that. And here the Apostle Paul affirms it. There is a creator who has a plan, a plan for what? He says, for all things in heaven and on earth. In other words, he asserts God has this plan and all of human history is part of it. Everything that happens fits into God's design sovereign blueprint. And Paul stresses the idea by using phrases and terms like the will of God, chosen, purposed, predestined, plan. And it's the use of this language that then begs the question people have been debating since the days of the ancient Greek philosophers. As human beings, do we have free will or not? You know, is there a predetermined plan <clears throat> in place that we cannot escape or do our freely made choices decide and sort of regulate the future? Now, before I <clears throat> definitively answer the question for you, uh, uh, let, me, let me just stress that 
this is not <clears throat> merely a theological issue, okay? It's a, it's a popular topic uh, among 21st century, you know, religious and irreligious people, academics, non-academics alike. And for the most part, people and their opinions fall into two categories. The first are those who, who say, there is no such thing as free will. There is no such thing. That's a position often referred to as determinism or fatalism, of which there are many variations. But the basic idea is that as human beings, we are not free. No matter how it seems, we're not free. Freedom of, of, of the will is an illusion. It's an illusion. Our, our choices, our lives, our futures are, are, are all planned out. They're destined. There's nothing we can do about it. And what's fascinating is how this opinion reflects a growing trend in the world of science today, where, where some physicists at places like Harvard University, Tufts, University of Penn, uh, argue that uh, we are just, you know, as human beings, we are locked into our choices by our genetic code and uh, environmental and cultural contexts. You know, every physical event is predetermined or completely caused by prior events, you know, neurological or otherwise. It's just the way it is. And some philosophers and psychologists and neuroscientists agree and also reject this notion of free will. Which again is nothing new though. I mean, 400 years before Jesus, 400 BC, the ancient Greek philosopher Sophocles wrote a very famous play entitled Oedipus the King. Most of us remember Oedipus as the guy who married his mother, right? But that's not the primary theme of the play in case you're wondering. Uh, according to the story, Early in his life, it was predicted that Oedipus would kill his father and marry his mother. <clears throat> and Oedipus and his father did everything possible to avoid that. And yet, in the end, that is exactly what happens. And you have to read the play to understand how it unfolds. It's got a great twist to it, but that's what happens. Sophocles was making a point in the story that no matter what we do, our lives are, are predetermined. Our choices don't matter, i.e., the message of the play was very deterministic. Free will is an illusion. The second category of thought rests with those who believe we do have free will, that nothing is predetermined, and therefore the choices we make you know, on our own volition decide our future. In other words, what's going to happen is unfixed. The future is it's just, it's up for grabs, man. It's up for grabs. And while there are academics who agree on this, this particular position most definitely represents uh, the dominating opinion of modern American pop culture. Don't you think that's true? Oh, uh, just, uh, I recently saw this uh, Mitsubishi commercial on TV where the narrator of, of the commercial proclaims they say everyone has a predetermined path, one you cannot escape, but my path, like my car, is my choice. Now, I don't think Mitsubishi was trying to influence anyone's philosophical position on free will. They just want you to buy their cars, right? And yet the assumption of the ad is, it's all up to you. There are no, there's no predetermined path. Your future is based on your choices, whether you're talking about cars or anything else. I'm assuming most of you watched some of the Olympics that have been on recently, and um, as you were watching, there was a lot of commercials. I'm wondering if you, you saw this commercial. This is a really good one. Check this out. So I don't know if you saw that, but that is just a beautiful, artistic um, piece of, uh, of filming, and it's a great commercial. I loved it. And in it, Nike says, your future is what you make it. 
Right? Fascinating, isn't it? Is it? Is it why you make it? There was also a commercial ad done by the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, that said destiny is not pre-written, but something we control ourselves. And then Under Armour, Armour did a promo with Michael Phelps, said, rule yourself, I will. Now, look, I admit, uh, had this question, had this issue not been rattling around in my brain for the last couple months, I would have thought nothing of those ads. They would have been on, I would have blanked out. But because I've been thinking through this, they caught my attention. Because in, in essence, they are endorsing this idea of free will, kind of pandering to our raging Western American, American individualism that believes we determine our future. No person, no thing decides it for us. Our future is what we make it, what we decide. It's all about our choices. American author and business guru Jack Welch got famous saying, control your own destiny or someone else will. But just understand, you know, this is not a, a, a mere marketing or business thing. The entertainment world, Hollywood, is obsessed with the idea of free will. I mean, think about this. How many films have come out over the years and continue to come out involving time travel? It's a very popular theme in films. People love it. And the un underlying premise of those stories is that the future can be altered. In fact, NBC is about to launch a new TV series called Timeless. Have you heard about it? Apparently it's about a scientist, a soldier, and a history professor who travel back in time to save the future. Here's my point. Whether we've noticed or not, whether we're thinking about it or not, there are two dominating opinions at work in and around us every single day. One says the future is unfixed. The choices we make by way of free will determines it. The other says don't be so naive. Don't be so naive to think you have free will. It's an illusion. We're locked into a predetermined path. And what tends to happen uh, if you live strictly according to one of those views, well, you know, the idea of a fixed, unescapable future can drain you of any hope, leaving you feeling completely powerless, while the idea that a future is whatever you make it, your, your destiny is determined by your choices alone, that can, be, that can paralyze you with anxiety and fear. Ooh, what do I do? And yet, with that all said, here's the question. Which is it? Which is it? Are we, are we free, or is there a plan we cannot escape? I've concluded, with a high degree of certainty, that, according to Scripture, the answer to the question is yes. <laughs> is that sinking in? The answer is yes. Now, I realize that may frustrate some of us, especially those of us who like, the, who like things very black and white, cut and dry, but understand, when it comes to this issue, Scripture is way more nuanced than our uh, human, feeble attempts to explain and categorize exactly how life in the universe works. A few years ago, philosopher Sam Harris wrote a book titled Free Will, in which he argues it doesn't exist. It's an illusion. Recently, I've been reading trying to read this book, Free Will, by Mark Belegger, a philosopher at Cal State. He argues that Harris and others like him can't prove we don't have free will. They can't prove it. However, uh, in his con concluding chapter, he offers this disclaimer. He says, anti-free will arguments put forth recently by philosophers, uh, psychologists, and neuroscientists simply don't work. We do not have any good reason to doubt the existence of free will. But, he says, I have not argued that we do have free will. 
Like, what? I'm glad I skipped to the conclusion because the middle part was really pretty hard. Um, here's my Reiki summary. Neither side of the question can prove the other wrong. Why? Because both are wrong and both are right at the same time. And that is, in essence, what the Apostle Paul says in this letter to the church. Because in the first three chapters, he uses deterministic language. You know? He says, we're chosen, we're elected, pr- purposed according to God's will, his plan, his blueprint. We are predestined to be in Christ. We're predestined to be like Christ, holy and blameless. And yet in the last three chapters, four, five, and six, Paul says we're responsible to make good, wise, healthy, God-honoring choices for that to become a reality. You say, well, hold on a second, hold on a second. If I'm predestined to be in Christ and predestined to be like Christ, then my choices don't matter. It makes no difference what I do. And Paul says, well, you are predestined, and yet your choices do matter. So make good, healthy ones. Now, this, look, this can, <laughs> this can be a mind-numbing, intellectually aggravating paradox if you let it get to you. Uh, but it is a paradox that, runs throughout scripture. In the Old Testament, for example, when talking uh, to his people about the future, God declares, surely as I have planned it, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. And the prophet Isaiah refers in in the same context to God's plan determined for the whole world. The, The Lord Almighty has purposed it and who can thwart him? And yet Isaiah goes on to warn the Israelites that they were responsible before God for their choices, for their behaviors, their actions. Uh, In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, in his first recorded sermon, says to the Israelites in Jerusalem, he says, you know, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, his blueprint, and his foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross, i.e., it was God's fixed, determined plan for Jesus to be put to death, sacrificed for sin. And yet, Peter says, those of you who crucified him need to repent for what you did. So, I mean, do you see the pattern? Do you you feel the tension? Determinism, fatalism says your choices don't matter. But in opposition to that, Scripture says your choices do matter. You're free to make them, and you're responsible. Um, And there are consequences to what you do. While at the exact same time, Scripture says, God sovereignly uses all of your free choices, good, bad, in between, in such a way as to bring bring about his good and perfect, determined plan. All, All history is part of it. Everyone is in it. And no one can escape it. And you know, I... I, th- I think some of the challenge uh, in grasping this uh, has to do with the way we view time. And we see time, most of us see time as a linear deal, like this straight line. And therefore, if, if we're, we figure if we're 100% free, then our destiny is not fixed. Or we figure if God's plan is 100% fixed, then we're certainly not free. But, um, but God is not limited by time. See, he's not limited by it. He exists outside of linear history. He's the beginning and the end, the eternal. He sees our past, he sees our present, he sees our future. Now for what it's worth, here's how I personally deal with and attempt to reconcile this paradox in my 
little pea brain. I figure as a human being, from my finite perspective and from my limited understanding, I have free will. I have free will. Every day I do. Every day I'm free to make decisions uh, and choices, and I'm responsible for the ones I make. However, I recognize that God, in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty, has a perfect plan for my life and for the world. I cannot escape it. So what do I do? Well, I approach life and its decisions with humility and, and with as much information and wisdom that I can find. And then I freely make choices. And I try then to rest and find peace in knowing that ultimately God is in control. That is the best I can do. That's the best I can do. And hey, you know, just like, just like all of you, there are times in life when, when uh, I kind of get it right. You know, I make good choices and reap the rewards. And then times when not, I, don't, I don't get it right so much. I've made bad choices and suffered the consequences. To, some, to that, some might, might, might say, wait, well, given that God has a predetermined plan, then that means he lets you make bad decisions and then allows suffering to enter your experience as a consequence and doesn't necessarily divert the pain away from you. Correct. He lets me suffer the consequences of my choices. Why? I mean, there are a lot of whys this morning, yeah? Uh, I don't know exactly. But I will tell you this. I mean, if we're honest about it, we realize no one, no one learns about their deepest flaws by being told. You've got to be shown. I've got to be shown. And no one, no one learns that God is loving and gracious and can be trusted simply by being told. You've got to be shown. I've got to be shown. Experience is necessary. And that's part of the plan. See, Paul's point is that, that God has this plan. Human history, all of human history is part of it. And he said, here's the point. Jesus. He's the point of it all. He's at the center of everything. He's the culmination of everything, right? I mean, according to the text, Paul says God's overarching purpose is what? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And the term for unity literally means to bring together. Now, why, why does he say that? Why do things need to be brought together? Well, look around. Everything is falling apart. Spiritually, physically, socially, morally. And that's not just a religious claim. It's a scientific, sociological reality. Think about it. What is the second law of thermodynamics? The, the law is this, that everything in the universe is in a, in a constant uh, state of entropy, right? Everything's running down. It's all falling apart, moving more and more toward chaos, disorder, and ultimate destruction. And really, that's what our friend Bertrand Russell is getting at. He said everything is destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. It's all falling apart. Well, you realize that that's sort of the meta-narrative of Scripture, isn't it? I mean, according to Genesis 3, uh, at the dawn of creation, when humanity's re relationship to, to our Creator fell apart because of rebellion, everything else started falling apart. Everything. You know, our relationship with ourselves fell apart. Our self-esteem, our, our self-image as human beings are just shattered and we've been dealing with that forever. As a result of that, our relationships with one another fell apart. Pride, jealousy, envy, deceit, conflict, all of it entered the historical relational scene. 
Gender relationships fell apart. Family relationships fell apart. Racial relationships fell apart. Our relationship with other classes has since fallen apart. With other nations has fallen apart. And there's suffering and there's evil and there's violence and there's aging and there's dying. Everything is falling apart. Humanity and the world is an advancing disarray. It's all coming unraveled. What will be done about it? Paul says, it is God's plan to bring unity to bring together all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And the term we translate under here comes from the Greek word that means head. Head in the sense of authority, power, leadership. And it carries the idea of a ruling king. Paul's saying, listen, the ultimate answer to a broken, sinful, and unraveling world is Jesus. He is at the center of God's redemptive plan, not only for us, but for the whole creation. 13 times in the first 11 verses of the letter, Paul refers to Jesus. Why? Because he's the point of it all. Through him, in him, by him, the love of God is demonstrated, the grace of God is offered, and the plan of God is culminated and accomplished. The true divine king will bring all things back together under his power and his authority. You know, I find it fascinating how many, many of our legends and myths and stories as human beings center on the struggle between good and evil, right? With sort of evil holding the upper hand until, and with everything around it falling apart until what? Until the true king shows up and with justice defeats evil, saves and reunites the kingdom. I mean, you ever wonder why, uh, why that's such a dominant theme in human storytelling? I mean, the overall track record of, of, of actual kings in, in history isn't that great. They're all flawed individuals, many of them corrupt and have been abysmal tyrants. And yet there remains this persistent idea of a righteous, heroic king showing up and saving the day. Where does that idea come from? And why is it so appealing to us? We want to hear the story over and over and over again. Could it be that, that there's something in our collective memories deep within our humanness, ingrained in our minds, our hearts, our spirits, that tells us this hero narrative is more than just a myth or fiction. It's more, it's more than something we like. It's more than something we want, something we as human beings are looking for. It's, we're longing for it. We're hoping for it. It's something that we need, a divine hero, a true champion, a righteous king to supernaturally come uh, and with great humility, authority, courage, love, and self-sacrifice, redeem us from, e uh, from evil and rescue us from destruction and bring all things back together. Paul says Jesus is that king, and that is God's plan. Now, I got to tell you, uh, prepping this week, I was a little nervous prepping for this morning because Look, I realize, I realize this idea of free will and predestination and God's sovereignty, I realize that in 30, min 30 minutes is not enough time to address everything, but it's more than enough time to confuse everybody. So I get that. I get that. Hopefully that hasn't, that hasn't happened. Um, but maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, eh, I don't know, man. I don't know about all this. I don't know. Come on. To say, yes, we have free will, yet there's a divine plan we can't escape, that just seems, that seems like an unresolvable contradiction. That, that just can't possibly be true. And I, I get that response. I, I get that. 
But it's important you understand that there are uh, unresolvable contradictions in our universe that are undeniably, inexplicably true. In quantum mechanics, for example, there's what's called the light wave particle duality. I'm sure you've read all about it. Uh, I I was reading about it this week and uh, my brain hurt because of it. But basically it comes down to this. According to experts, sometimes in the universe light behaves as waves and sometimes it behaves as particles. The problem is particles have mass, waves do not. Therefore, light can't and shouldn't be able to act as waves and particles. And yet, quantum mechanics proves it does. And how does the scientific community explain the contradiction? They say, that's just the way it is. (laughs) That's the answer. Scientists admit we don't have enough information to understand how it works, but it works, it's true. Is light a particle or, or a wave? The answer is yes. It's an unresolvable contradiction. And what Paul is saying in his letter here is really no different. That as human beings, we do have, we do have free will. Uh, do, uh, do we have free will or is there a predetermined plan we cannot escape? The answer is yes. It's inexplicably true. And we don't have enough information to understand how it works. But we're never told we've got to figure it out. That's a good thing. And so, as I see it, here's the, here's the practical reality. Here's the practical application. Did you choose to come here to the service today? The answer is yes. Did God plan on you being here? Absolutely, the answer is yes. And what's the point? The point is Jesus. He is the center of it all. He is the culmination of it all. And you've come to hear of him, and to believe. I believe that's true. Let's pray. Our Father, as, as, um, as human beings, we, we, we sometimes have a rather elevated opinion of our own abilities, of our own abilities to understand and explain um, how the universe works around us. And yet, even the brightest minds come to places where they admit we just, we just don't know how it all works. And um, I pray that you would give us the humility today to come to a very similar conclusion, especially as it relates to this whole idea of free will or your plan for us. We can't reconcile it in our, in our limited uh, abilities. We just, we just can't do it. Thank you that you love us despite our inabilities. Thank you that you don't call us to grasp these deep, intricate truths of the universe in order to be part of your family, part of your kingdom. You simply call us to believe. But not just to believe in facts and figures and theories, but to believe in the one who rests at the center of it all, Jesus, who came to rescue and redeem that which is broken and lost and forfeited and ultimately bring together um, 
all things on, in heaven and on earth. His redemption, his offer of redemption is to us and his life was for us. And I pray this morning that as best that we can, that we would embrace the reality of that and believe and follow hard after him and trust and find peace in the fact that you remain in control of all things. We want you to know we trust you this morning and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being with us this morning. You know, Paul says so much in this letter. We can't hit on everything, but one of the words he uses in the section we looked at today is that he uses the word mystery. He talks about the mystery of God's will. And I really appreciate that word for a couple reasons. One, it, it tells me I don't have to figure it all out. <laughs> so it takes off a little pressure. Um, there's, there's things about God, what he does, why he does it, how he does it. We're just never going to understand this side of heaven. Um, and that's freeing to me. But the other reason I like, he, like, I like that he uses the word is, is this whole idea of the mystery of, of, of God's will. And he often, when he uses the term, he's talking about the mystery of the good news of Jesus. This mystery of God's grace. You know, the mystery of why the creative universe would, would care enough about me and you, as rebellious creatures, uh, to redeem us. It's a mystery, but it's a wonderful mystery. And embracing the mystery of it, embracing this idea of grace, embracing, embracing Jesus, choosing to be a follower of his, believing that he came and his life, his death, his resurrection frees you of sin, forgives you and offers you life. Um, believing that is what it means to be a Christian. And I, I hope you do. Uh, I also hope you'll come back next week as we continue. Uh, I do believe that it is God's predetermined plan that you'll be here. So uh, I just thought I'd give you a heads up on that now so you don't have to wrestle with that this week. Uh, we'll, we'll see what Paul has to say next. Uh, if you haven't, um, this is what I want you to do. If you haven't done it already, this week, read through the letter as if Paul is a friend of yours writing to you. Read through the letter one time straight through. It takes you 15, 20 minutes, and then read chapter one again because we're going to be stuck in chapter one again next week. Okay? And if you haven't signed up for a life group yet, stop by the table in the, in the lobby. Sign up for a group. We'll help you connect in a group in the area that are studying these, these ideas and, and working through um, as we go through the series. Okay? Uh, also, if, if you're with us and you just had a really rough week or you just want someone to talk to about issues in life or whatever, some of our prayer team folks will be down front uh, and they'll be happy to chat and pray with you, okay? Let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. And now, Lord, as the church leaves this place, um, uh, we're thankful that we, we don't have to leave in despair, but we leave with great joy and hope in the knowledge of Jesus, who loves us, who has redeemed us, and who one day will bring all things together and renew and heal not only our lives, but uh, heal the creation. This week, may we live freely in that knowledge. Uh, and may we live in such a way that we point people to Jesus. May your hand of grace and peace now rest on your people. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.